Hello and welcome to the first episode of BirdCast. I'm John Fries. BirdCast is a brand new podcast featuring interesting stories and conversations with fascinating people who live in and around America's most livable city, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On today's show, if you were a teenager or young adult in Pittsburgh in the 1970s, you probably listened to Trevor Lay when he ruled the album Rock Airwaves on WDVE. Trevor is a native Pittsburgher with deep local roots whose radio career spanned more than 40 years and covered the United States from coast to coast. I first met Trevor in 1980 when I was just out of college and we worked together at a fledgling new Pittsburgh station named 3WS. Not only co-workers, we became fast friends and remain close friends to this day. Well, Trevor eventually left 3WS for a radio job in San Jose, California. In the years since, he's raised a family of four and today is a proud grandfather, too. Following his most recent radio gig at a station in Dallas, he moved home to Pittsburgh and eventually retired here. During our conversation, he talks about his early days in New York, his experiences at DVE, and the time he spoke to 16,000-plus people from the stage of the former Civic Arena. How did you originally get into radio? Yeah. Well, you know, I was always the kid uh, playing my records in the basement, and I, I really wanted to be a singer. I mean, Dion and Jimmy Beaumont were my heroes, you know, circa 1959, mm-hmm. 1960. Uh, and, yeah, I'd be in my basement playing my records, and my dad built a bar in the basement and put a mirror behind the bar. So my record player was on the bar, and I was in the mirror practicing you know, <laughs> to, to be a singer or whatever. So that's it's kind of what I wanted. Um, and you did play in a band too, right? Well, later on I did, on. yeah. Um, and in high school I was in plays. As a matter of fact, uh, the English teacher uh, who directed the plays in high school tried to encourage me to apply for a theater co- scholarship when I was in my senior year because um, I'd been in the junior play and the senior class play. Me and another guy were the first to start a drama club at Shaler. So I was kind of into that. Um, but at the same time, I was playing folk music and stuff. I had weird influences in that I was into folk music because it was Vogue at the time, the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary and all that. But I also hung out with some people that wore sharkskin pants and black high-heeled boots oh, wow. that were listening to these unknowns like Bo Diddley and Isley Brothers and, you know, the original Louie Louie by Richard Berry, who wrote it. Um, I remember a friend had that on a 78, you know. And were the words so, different, by the way, the lyrics? They were different? absolutely clear, which yeah. is why when the King's Men's version became the hit, first of all, I was resentful. I thought, oh, man, that ain't Louie Louie, <laughs> you know. Um, but it was a hit, and then they got into trouble because the lyrics were supposedly filthy, but I already knew what they were. Mm-hmm. So I felt bad for them. It's like, yeah, well, no, no, no. They were singing what was on the record. It just is a little garbled, and you think it's something else, but it's not. You know, I smell the rose in her hair. That's a, <laughs> um, anyway. Um, but yeah, I uh, I kind of passed on the on the theater idea because by that time I was playing guitar and at least well enough that I could perform. I did kind of a folk act with a friend of mine uh, from high school. We were really into the Smothers Brothers, and we actually borrowed uh, red jackets and purple ties, or uh, I forget, might have been the other way around, but we actually called ourselves the Other Brothers and did Smothers Brothers bits at oh, talent wow. shows and stuff. Um, I don't know how good we were. I wish there were 
you know, tapes of those things. But <laughs> we didn't have that technology then. It's gone, you know. Um, but then I started playing rock and roll with some people and ignored the theater part. And when I went to Clarion as an English major, um, you know, my dad, like all dads do, now you're going up there for an education. That playing guitar thing is a hobby. Oh, okay, Dad, yeah. Um, I was on the Clarion campus for like two days before classes started, you know, freshman orientation, etc. Thought I'd take a walk and explore and see what was there. And I walked past the uh, Phi Sig fraternity house, and I could tell that was a live band that was playing music in there. And I went up and snooped in the window and got invited in. And the short story of that is ended up forming a band before classes even started. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) And we played, um, we basically played all the mixers and fraternity parties and stuff for two years at Clarion because we were cheap, Mm -hmm. because we were there. Right. Um, The alternative for a fraternity or whatever would be to hire a band that they would have to pay more money for to come up from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. But we were there. Uh, when that band broke up my freshman year, there was another band in town that was our competitor. Um, they lost some members, too, so we combined the two bands for my sophomore year, and we did even better. <laughs> um, but the one guy uh, got thrown out of school after a fight or something, and the band broke up. And I got horribly depressed, realizing the only reason I was on that campus was the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't care about going to classes or whatever. But, of course, that was 1966 by then, and I didn't want to go back to school after my sophomore year. And God bless my mother for having the foresight to tell me, like, by the way, um, you're going to end up in Vietnam drafted if you don't get another student deferment. So you ought to do something. And at her encouragement, uh, I wasn't really deeply into it, but with her encouragement, I applied for a broadcasting school that used to be local in Pittsburgh, but it turned out it had sold to a chain called Career Academy, and the closest one was Washington, D.C. So the fall of 66, I went to Washington, D.C. Um, to go to Career Academy. Stayed in a rooming house with a central dining room. It was very nice, kind of a semi-dorm situation. But then I had a little part-time job in a grocery store and um, befriended a guy that I just started a conversation with who one day said, hey... We had, like, five guys in an apartment. We lost two of our roommates. Would you and your friend Jay want to share the apartment with us? So I ended up in an apartment with with five guys, one of which I went to school with. The others had other jobs or whatever, but we had a blast. Uh, It was the first place I discovered certain substances. Um, I remember a night or two walking all over Georgetown, talking a mile a minute because somebody had these diet pills. Mm Mm-hmm. And we thought they were the magic to broadcasting because, wow, we can read and talk a mile a minute, man. This is great. And then we realized, oh, no, you had crash and sleep for two days after that. So, <laughs> no, that won't work. Um, but other substances, too, started smoking weird cigarettes. And that whole cultural shift was coming around. This is late 1966. I finished school there in January of 67. And draft board had already called me knowing when school was finished. So... As a beginner in radio, um, one of the first questions asked if you were trying to get a job was, what's your draft status in those days? Because they didn't want to hire somebody who would get drafted because, by law, they have to hire you back two years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chuck Brinkman went through that, by the way, with KQV. He actually had to, I think, go to court 
because uh, he was drafted, and they had to hire him back, and it worked out rather well for Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up working with him. Uh, I mean, he was just, uh, I was a fan like everybody else uh, until I ended up working with him in Dallas in the 80s, and uh, he's just passed away recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chuck always kind of looked out for me. I'm, I'm very glad to have met one, you know, worked with one of my heroes. That was very cool. Um, but again, back to the uh, the question, I was not really the kind uh, who was into being Jerry DJ. Some people just want to be on the air, to be on the air. Mm-hmm. I was a music person. Um, and the music I was into at the early kind of pre-psychedelic hippie days was not on the radio anywhere. Um, especially since, uh, back to getting a job as a beginner, I really wasn't deeply into getting a beginner job in radio anyway. And part of that was because they had already called me for my physical and I knew I was going to get drafted. So this was January or February when I was kind of like finished with the school, not knowing when I was going to get drafted. Um, And one of my roommates from D.C. had moved to Greenwich Village. He and I were like deeply into Love and Spoonful together and that whole kind of beginning hippie culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when he and I first met in October of 66, short hair, you know, <laughs> collegiate-looking clothes. Uh, by the time January came, the hair was real long and the clothes were mod and, you know, freaky. And he moved to Greenwich Village to be part of that culture. And he was in touch with me saying, you should come up. And I thought, I'm just going to get my ass drafted. So I might as well. I might as well party until they decide they're going to send me to Asia to get shot. Um, that was my attitude. And lo and behold, they left me alone long enough that I sort of forgot about it. Um, but I was in uh, Greenwich Village starting in, well, I can always, the timeline, because about the time I moved to Greenwich Village was in, within a couple of weeks of the release of a two-sided single called Penny Lane on one side and Strawberry Fields on the other. Oh, wow. Because they were playing everywhere in Greenwich Village when I got there. So anytime I hear those songs, I reflect right back to McDougal Street in the village. And, you know, um, thrilled to walk past the Night Owl Cafe where the Love and Spoonful had played. And Mama Cass had waited tables. And Jim McGuinn from The Birds hung out there. And Stephen Stills hung out with Peter Torkelson. <laughs> and they both auditioned for this TV show. And Torkelson became a monkey and Stills wasn't hired so he you were there at exactly he went the right to LA <laughs> you, you were there yeah. at exactly the right time uh, except that I didn't hook up with any of those people unfortunately <laughs> I did work for a lady uh, I worked at a, a, a comic book publisher during the day and the lady there was part of the old like beatnik culture and she knew Woody Guthrie oh wow and she I remember her telling me one time she said you know who you would really get along with is Woody's son Arlo I should take you over to meet Arlo I thought about that years later. It was like, damn it, we didn't do that. Because you know? <laughs> Arlo and I would have gotten along very well. I'm and, sure. You know, I'm sure. <laughs> um, who knows? But, you know, that's one of those, like, close but no cigar things. But, yeah, they left me alone long enough um, in Greenwich Village that I forgot about getting drafted. I met a guy. We clicked. We started writing songs together. Um, he had chutzpah, came by it genetically. His name was Eddie Goldfluss from Long Island with his sister Sheila. Um I had a crush on Sheila. You like my nails? <laughs> she was beautiful. Um, but uh, I would work at the comic book publisher during the day, and Eddie was uh, ballsy enough that we didn't have tape facilities very much in those days. You know, now you can just record on your phone. 
but we didn't have that kind of thing. Um, Eddie would actually go around and knock on doors of uh, record people and producers and so forth. And if they were willing to sit down and listen, he would sing our songs. And we got interest from a producer at one point. Um, this is long about, long about June of 1967, right around the time that Sgt. Pepper came out. Because we spent a whole day listening to Sgt. Pepper and doing nothing else. Mm. Well, we took certain pills, I think, but yeah. <laughs> um, Sgt. Pepper was the whole day and on into the evening in Washington Square Park. Um, but uh, this producer was interested in us, and the deal there was, I want you to rehearse with my assistant here, Melanie. <laughs> 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 There's a reason for the laugh. Um, and when she thinks you're ready, I'll take you into the studio. Well, then, about a week after that, comes the draft notice. So, worst possible timing, U.S. government, no, I do not want to go shoot at people in Asia. I want to make records. It's my lifelong dream. Shh. You know, can I say shit? You can say anything you like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was just really, really awful timing. Um, I was crushed. And I thought, how the hell can I get out of this? And I didn't know. Um, there's another story there where I took certain pills that made you look like you had a kidney condition or something. And all I did was get whacked on Belladonna. Uh, but I came back from my draft physical with hair and beads and bell bottoms and purple velvet boots that zipped up the side and all. I could have gotten drafted out of New York. I decided to come back to Pittsburgh because I thought, freaky as I look, they'll just turn me around and send me home. Right. We don't want you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was not the case. Um, so my alternative was to write down anything on the paperwork that I thought would cause them to reject me. Any drug I could spell or the security questionnaire that um, asks, have you ever been to any meetings where they advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government? And I went, yes. It was all made up. Right. But... I thought somebody's going to look at this and say, we don't want you, um, which didn't happen. I didn't realize until much, much later that nobody looked at that stuff. They stamped a signature on it, um, put it in a folder, stuck the folder under your arm, marked you across the Smithfield Street Bridge <laughs> to the old P&LE station, now Grand Concourse. It was a toilet then. Uh, my dad came down and cut my hair um, in the men's room of that awful, dirty train station. And the last time I was at the Grand Concourse and went into that men's room, I was laughing my head off because the floor tile is still the same, the sink is still the same. And I looked at the sink and said, oh, God, that's where my dad cut my hair off in July of 1967. That's preservation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. Well, it's, it's great. It's got that old blue, old black and white tile. Oh, the yeah. stuff never wears out. And that's what I realized. Oh, when they redid the Grand Concourse, they realized, oh, this bathroom is fine. You know, why mess with it? Sure. So they, they just cleaned it up and left it alone. Well, it's a nice building. Yeah. It's a beautiful building. Oh, too. God, yeah. I've been in there. I, I um, actually was looking into volunteering with the uh, History and Landmarks for a while. Um, and it's a great place to visit them upstairs there, too. Yeah. But, yeah. And, uh, well, back in the 70s, there was uh, actually a plan. Uh, I thought I knew somebody that had money to invest, and I discussed this idea of opening a nightclub in this development that Nancy Flaherty was heading up, um, turning that old railroad terminal into a, like a shopping mall, which became Station Square. That was Pete, Mayor Pete's wife. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, uh, a friend of mine and I were planning on trying to open a nightclub in Station Square. I still look at that corner and say, like, well, I wonder what would have happened, you know. Uh, the money just kind of dissolved when it came time to get serious, so it didn't happen. But my plan was I knew that record companies promoted new artists by, uh, 
you know, putting them into places like that. They would also pick up the tab because they would invite all the radio and media people to like a showcase and they would pay for the food and drinks. So I thought, win-win. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get the talent for free and I get the bill paid. Um, but it, it didn't happen. I was at DVE at the time, so I was quite happy with my life the way it was. Was that your first radio gig, DVE? No, I mean, you have to go where... What happened when I said I wasn't Jerry Jerry DJ, I was a music person, I really just kind of let the whole idea of broadcasting completely behind. I did it for the draft affirmant at my mother's suggestion. Again, because what I was into musically and culturally was not on the radio anywhere in the mid-60s. Well, how did you... Because people in Pittsburgh, um, you're you're well known for the time you spent at DVE because people my age were teenagers when you were there and we yep. listened to you as we were preparing to go into radio ourselves so you you have a whole um you have a whole army of people out there who yeah. listened to trevor and went into the business um, I'll, how did always, you end up there? I'll always be grateful to little jimmy roach and a guy named ted Rossitti, who was uh engineer kind of management at the time um because without the two of them i wouldn't have been there um but no what happened was after the army i, I actually went back to new york uh when i got out of the army um, I got out uh, like the day after they landed on the moon. Mm. Another time that's hard to, to you know, forget about. And my friend Bruce, who was the one that had moved to the village in the first place, said, we'll celebrate you getting out of the army by going to this uh, music arts fair thing that they're having. And he bought tickets for mm-hmm. it. It's like, okay, great. You know. Um, and that was, uh, I got out in July. And in August, I took a bus from Pittsburgh back to New York. Uh, when I got to New York, I, I did see at the Port Authority bus terminal, I saw all these kids with backpacks and stuff, and it didn't register me what they might be doing. It's like, oh, well, it's a Friday, you know, uh, people going camping, whatever. I called my friend Bruce down in the village, and I said, uh, hey, I'm back in New York. Let's you know, go eat or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and somewhere in the conversation, is like, oh, weren't we going to go to this um, music and arts fair thing? Didn't you get tickets? And he went, you haven't heard? I went, heard what? The highways are closed. You can't get there. I went, oh, get out. <laughs> well, of course, I'm talking about Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually had tickets and couldn't get there. And through my whole career, when I played Joni Mitchell's <coughs> Woodstock, I always mentioned that Joni and I were both stuck in Manhattan during the Woodstock Festival. If people assumed that meant that we were stuck together, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that her manager, she was booked for the Dick Cavett Show the following Monday, and her manager did not want her to go up there and get caught in all that and not make the TV show. Mm-hmm. So she sat watching the news coverage on TV and wrote the song, mm-hmm. which her friends did. They ended up on the Dick Cavett show with her with muddy pants, <laughs> just back from the festival. So. But anyway, I, I was back in, uh, in Greenwich Village, and um, the culture wasn't the same. You know, the hippie thing had kind of turned dark and... Um, you know, after Woodstock, uh, that whole... I mean, that was kind of the peak of things. Mm-hmm. I just watched a documentary the other night that mentioned how closely after Woodstock the Altamont Festival was, where people got killed. That was that was, that was was as ugly as Woodstock was beautiful. Um, and the Manson murders happened around that time. That was part of our culture, unfortunately. Um, Rolling Stone made him out like he was a hero. Um, so things got kind of dark, um, and so did New York. Uh, I worked for a film sound studio for a little while. Um, I sold film equipment for a little while. Had a letter from Stanley Kubrick about a piece of equipment. Yeah, I, I've lost it over the years, but that was kind of neat to have later on. Oh, man. Of yeah. 
Because I had already seen uh, that Spacey movie of his, 2001, yeah. Well, mm. and when you were in New York, you were there when Times Square was pretty seamy, shall we say. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, uh, my some of my family members coming from Texas want to go to, because I have a daughter who lives in Brooklyn, uh, they want to go to New York for New Year's Eve, and they want to go see the ball drop. And I say, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, It's just like a friend in Dallas told me one time when I said, oh, New Orleans, I would love to go for Mardi Gras. And she said, no, you don't. I used to attend bar there. You don't want to be there for Mardi Gras. <laughs> um, but same thing. Um, and what made me think of that was that my roommate, uh, I was living in Manhattan in a, in a kind of a flea bag hotel. Um, and my old drummer from Clarion Days was up there with me. He was my roommate. He came back to Pennsylvania for the holidays, so I was by myself. And New Year's Eve, uh, probably about 6 or 7 p.m., I actually went to a theater on 42nd Street and saw Midnight Cowboy, which was new and release. That's hey, I'm walking here! You know. Um, but I came out of that probably 9.30 in the evening um, on 42nd Street. I started walking back as the hotel was on 50th Street. And uh, on my way back, I saw them unloading busloads of cops with nightsticks. I saw crews boarding up windows two stories high with plywood. And I thought, this is insane. Mm -hmm. I never knew it was like that. You know, I had not lived in New York or in Manhattan for New Year's Eve, you know. So initially I was thinking, oh, I'll just stay out here till midnight and we'll see this thing live. Like, I, you know. And I realized at some point, I don't think I want to be here. <laughs> right, yeah. So I actually went back up to where I lived on 50th Street, just blocks away from where the ball drop is, and watched Dick Clark on television. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it seems strange, but no, you know. But my kids want to go. Okay, we'll go. Well, if yeah. you lived on 50th Street in Manhattan, mm -hmm. in those days it must not have been as expensive, because today to live no, on 50th no. Street would be crazy yeah, this, expensive. This was a pretty cheesy motel. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were junkies and stuff around there yeah um but we were low budget you know and we were you know part of the old hippie culture so instead mm -hmm. of a crash pad in greenwich village which also you know all the hippies crashed in cheap places in greenwich village at the time and you can't afford that anymore either right you know you had an uptown crash same with pad. the neighborhood <laughs> i was talking about in dc where it was all student housing when i was there now it's like you know multi-million dollar condos mm -hmm. off dupont circle that was wonderful um anyway uh new york being kind of dark and just not the fun that it was, I eventually uh, decided to come back to Pittsburgh. And, uh, oh, there were, you know, friends that I've known since high school, two brothers, actually, um, one of whom used to own this uh, dance hall up in Mars, Pennsylvania, where my band from Clarion played. We were stars there. That was that was lots of fun. Mm -hmm. We packed that place. Um, but that was like 65. Um, later on, he bought a record shop. Uh, called Record Rama in Etna. Some people will, rem will remember that. It was on the bend in Etna. And uh, I ended up working for him because I was still friends with his brother and I knew him from, you know, This is Paul Mawinney? This is Paul Mawinney. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I worked for Paul for about three years. Um, that's when WDVE first came around. I mean, I used to listen to KQV-FM. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what happened was in, in 69 or so, the FCC was pressuring radio stations like KQV to separate, because it used to be they simulcast KQV, AM, and FM, the same signal. The FCC, in trying to get more diverse programming on the radio, started pressuring companies to do something different on their FM than they did on their AM. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that in Pittsburgh, as far as I understand it, is that they went to WPPJ at Point Park, junior college at the mm -hmm. time, which is the J. Right. 
and got a couple of the the freaky student DJs there and stuck them on KQVFM. Well, initially, ABC had syndicated programming with Murray Roman and J.J. Jackson, <coughs> who I got to know later, um, and they had Brother Love. You know, uh, people my age will remember that. This is like 1970, 71-ish. Okay. But eventually, they went to live programming with, um, oh, geez, um, I'm trying to think of the names. Um, Davis? Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people that did a lot of things later on, but the initial were, they were students at Point Park playing, you know, these freaky hippie music, and you know ABC who owned KQV and and uh, KQV FM at the time. That's where Eddie um, Barrett started too, right? Who worked with us at Three WS. I worked with Ed later on. I didn't yeah. know what he did in those days. I didn't run across him for whatever. I know reason. he went to Point yeah. Park, but I don't mm-hmm. know if he was at the radio station at that time. Yeah, I remember some of the initial people just as a listener in the early 70s. Um, but, yeah, those were all Point Park people. Uh, Dwight Douglas was one of mm-hmm. them. That's that's the name that came to mind. Jay Davis, who ended up being kind oh, of a – yeah. He was an influence on me, actually. Uh, the first tape that I made to get a job in radio, uh, I had recorded uh, Jay Davis and just transcribed what he did. Mm-hmm. And re-recorded it myself on a little borrowed Wallen sack. Oh wow! In and my living room, I never, you know, I never was, did college. I had never been on the air, and somebody hired me. It was he was on KQV. I remember him. Yeah, on the AM side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apparently, what happened? Uh, I may have this wrong in my memory, um, but once it started being more successful than they expected it to be, the powers that be at ABC wanted, of course, corporate control. Mm-hmm. So they started to get somebody to try to program it from New York. And the original hippies were like, uh, hey, you know, you just kind of threw us in here on this FM signal and didn't care about us. And now they're starting to get some ratings. You want to bring somebody in to supervise us and tell us what to do? We made this happen for you. So they were kind of resentful. And the initial bunch approached, um, what was his name, Goldberg, Gold. Something that owned WYDD in New Kensington, mm-hmm. and uh, it was jazz and not doing a great deal of business. But they convinced him to uh, let them bring their hippie rock and roll and put it on WYDD because the people at ABC um, wanted to, like you know, program them from New York, and they said, "Screw you," you know. So they left. Dwight Douglas included, and Jay Davis. Um, I can't remember who else was all along. There's a woman whose name I can't recall at the moment who was also very good. Um, But that caused um, what became WDVE. Call letters, by the way, based on the Woodstock poster with the dove. That's what I had Most people don't know that, yeah. Um, I even went to a a party with a bunch of WDVE people. Most of them didn't know that. (laughs) I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that's fascinating Mm because I didn't know that when I was growing up, but I learned it later, yeah. They were just quickly looking for what call letters should we apply for, and something about Woodstock came to mind, and they went, yeah, Mm -hmm. the Dove, WDVE. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what it became. Uh, So they, uh, this was 73 or so by then, I think when um, all these people um, headed for New Kensington for WYDD and um, ABC, WDVE at the time, went out looking for new staff, and uh, Jimmy Roach was part of that influx. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was around that time. I never felt like, uh, even though I listened to them and all of a sudden got interested in radio, this is what, I was working at the record shop, 
selling, you know, uh, I remember we made fun of the Warner Brothers guy who had come in promoting this new band to us. And we used to mock him later because the first album was a total failure. Oh, it's like, yeah, this is another Doobie Brothers. <laughs> well, the second album kind of changed that. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I always associate, uh, listen to the music and some of the first Allman Brothers songs with the early days of WDVE as a listener mm-hmm. for me. But, yeah, my music was all of a sudden on the radio. So I was interested. And it was like, hey, you know, and I had friends and other people that said, you're working at a record shop. And on payday, you have regular customers that come in here and ask for your recommendations and leave with an armload of albums based on what you told them. Hey, have you heard this? You know Eric Clapton? This is Eric Clapton with some other people. He doesn't want to use his own name, so he's calling it Derek and the Dominoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a hell of a time selling Layla to people. He sounds like uh, the guy from Cream. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Atlantic had a hard time, too. They released Layla as a single like three different times before mm-hmm. it succeeded, but, you know. Yeah, I was like, God, you got to hear this, man, you know. So I was selling music to people that way, and at some point it became like, you know, you went to broadcasting school, you have a license, you should just turn people on to music on a larger scale. Yeah, I should, huh? So I made the tape, like I said, uh, transcribing Jay Davis uh, in my living room in Squirrel Hill. I lived above the tunnels (laughs) (laughs) off of Murray Avenue. I loved Squirrel Hill. I still do. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I borrowed a tape recorder from a friend because they weren't common. You know, people didn't have those um, regularly. But I made this little tape on a three-inch reel, and I sent it around to ads that were in Broadcasting Magazine. And lo and behold, this guy from WILI in Willimantic, Connecticut, who the hell ever heard of Willimantic, <laughs> uh, called me. And on top of everything else, he said, I've never been to Pittsburgh, so instead of you coming here for an interview, I'll fly down to see you. Oh, wow. How about and we, that? we went to the old um, uh, the gazebo on Walnut Street back when they had great Reuben sandwiches and all. And we had lunch at the gazebo and talked. I had never been on the air. I went to broadcasting school, but I did not do college radio or anything. And I remember his name was Dave Evan. And Dave said, I think you have a knack for this. And he felt that more strongly than I did, actually, even though I wanted the job. But he hired me. And I uprooted and moved to uh, Willimantic, Connecticut. Was there for three years. Uh, it was great. I still go back to visit. I think I mentioned to you earlier the guy who was the morning guy named Wayne Norman was just uh, inducted into the Connecticut Broadcasters Hall of Fame. <laughs> he was the morning guy when I arrived there in July of 1973. He is still the morning guy. And he's the play-by-play for UConn basketball and football. Wow, that's all. So that's yeah. a legacy. That's like a, I said, he doesn't sleep. That's history. <laughs> yeah, he's done UConn basketball uh, for so long that when they won the championship, they made him a championship ring along with the team. Oh, that's good. He's he's that close to all those people, and it's great. He's a wonderful guy. He's really talented, and uh, I've sat with him doing play-by-play. We did a baseball game together where I said I was the off-color guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they called the sidekick the color man. I, I was the off-color man. You know, I would talk about, hey, they're at the, the house over there. You know, I didn't know anything about the statistics or whatever. Uh, uh, we did that because I was able to get us a free place to stay in Pittsburgh. We came down from Connecticut. Um, the, the local Eastern Connecticut State College was in a tournament playing in Freeport, Pennsylvania. So I made the case, like, if I go to Pittsburgh with Wayne, I can get us a free place to stay. And it went great. Wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. Terrific. Go with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I became part of the staff for the game that way. Uh, 
that's what's been fun. I mean, getting into music radio, but then having opportunities like that where you get to do other things. Yeah, I didn't know that you had yeah. done play-by-play or, oh, color, no, or well, color. No, that was like one time. Thing. Yeah. It was fun. We, he and I still make jokes about it, you know. You were really awful. And I go, I know. <laughs> but I had fun. We had a free place to stay, you know. And we actually, uh, he and I um, actually met George Hart for the first time. Oh, the late because great George Hart, yes. That weekend when we were in town was the latter days of KQV as a music station. And we went down, you know, I mean, he was from out of town. Wayne was from L.A., working in Connecticut. We were here for like two days. Uh, and in the evening, we went for a ride downtown Pittsburgh so I could show him around. And I took him to Walk and Don't Walk and said, hey, here's the KQV oh, studios. Yeah. I grew up listening to this station. They presented the Beatles, and now they're going to be all news. And George was probably a teenager at that time because he told me he, he was, was pretty young. Yeah, he was on the air. Yeah. And we actually, I think we um, we had one of our music surveys or something mm-hmm. in the car. And we held it up to the window so George would realize we're radio people. Yeah. So he, he came out on the Smithfield Street side. You know, during a song, he poked his head out the door to say hi, you know. Oh, that's great. And we talked to him for a little bit. I'll never forget that. Um, uh, that was a fun time. I wish I still had tape of um, Hal Murray, was mm-hmm. the guy who had done mornings there, the Murray go-around. Uh, he and Joe Fenn were on the air in the evening this time. But KQV, I think, because they were going to be all news, um, like the program director had left and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of like uh, no rules. So Hal Murray and Joe Fenn were on the air. It took them like 20 minutes to do the baseball scores because they just kept ad-libbing and cutting up. Joe Fenn was out with a microphone at, at, on the corner of Smithfield and, and 7th Avenue talking to people on the street or stopping cars. They were just carrying on. Mm-hmm. And it was great radio for radio people. It's like, right. oh, God, they're just like, <clears throat> they have a, a major market signal. They're just ad-libbing oh, yeah. on. No rules. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, for radio people who appreciate some of the things that transpired there, um, yeah, you know, small town radio with uh, people selling advertising that aren't real good at writing things for the ear, right? Stuff. So, even though I was a beginner, I'm starting to do commercials where it's like, oh God, I don't want to say this. So I complained a little bit, and all of a sudden I was in charge of copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, you know. And they were not. I got regular raises there. I mean, I remember I started there at 115 dollars a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 1973, but still not much money. Right. Um, here, you have to pause while I chase the dog. Go sit. Go. Go. Thank you. He's a good boy. Um, yeah, and that led to becoming production director, so I was in charge of all that. You know, and that's fine because it was great education. I'm a beginner in radio. Yeah, give me. What, uh, I, I need to learn this stuff, you know. One of the cool things about up there, I mean, again, Willimantic, Connecticut, uh, who's ever heard of that? Uh, but it's a cool area. There's uh, Eastern Connecticut State College is in town, and it's only about, I don't know how many miles, <clears throat> less than 10 miles from Stores, which is University of Connecticut, which is rather large. Was that rural so, Connecticut where you were? It's kind of rural, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of farms in the outlying areas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very pretty. I mean, it's New England. It's gorgeous. Oh, you true. know, Yeah. Um, the fall, I mean, you can't beat it. I mean, we brag about fall leaves here. Clarion makes a big fuss about their mm-hmm. fall leaves. It's like, no, man, I was in New England. You know, <laughs> They know how to do it. You learn 34 degrees is the magic number. You know, mm-hmm. If it's sunshiny during the day and 34 at night, you'll get beautiful leaves. They know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of good about it. I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, in the summer, you take a Saturday and drive down to Long Island Sound. 
which is uh, you know an easy trip. It was an easy uh, easy trip on a on a Saturday to go to either New York or Boston. Uh, my first wife Patty and I um, made trips to Cambridge a number of times. I mean, great to just go hang out in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just cool stores and you know it's, it's wonderful culture. Um, so it was nice. I really enjoyed living there, and I learned a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And getting close to about three years there, even though I enjoyed it and loved the people and everything, I started to feel too big for my britches, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I was either like really naive or really confident at the time because uh, I started sending out tapes to like big city radio stations, but I wasn't getting response. I was waiting to move up. You know, go to sure, a bigger yeah, market. At that point, yeah. Um, but I started to think, you know, people are getting mail from Willimantic, Connecticut, and they ain't even opening it. You know, in right. Chicago, yeah, we're going to hire somebody from Willimantic, Connecticut. Forget <laughs> that. Um, so I don't know. That may not have been true. But I even had um, the balls or whatever you want to call it to take a few days off, and I went down to New York. And I walked into WNEWFM, which was the. Album rock station oh, that was a huge in station. New York. Yes, yes. Scott Muni was the program director. I actually went in and asked for Scott. He came out and talked to me, and he put me in my place. <laughs> what did he say? What did he, um, say? he was wonderful. Uh, he said, "Well, I don't want an air check of air check is the tape of you on the air that right. normally you would use to show off what you do and how good you are." Blah blah blah. He said, "I don't want an air check." He said, "I want you to go into a studio and roll tape and tell me who you are." Which was a little pressure. I thought, ooh, mm-hmm. okay. It's easy to do an air check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what he was doing. He said, I also don't want a resume. Uh, write me your biography and what your goals are and your philosophy on broadcasting and so forth. Oh, okay. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. And I never followed up on that because he knew exactly what he was telling. Plus, it was WNEW. I mean, you know, the people there, some of them are probably still there for all I know. You yeah. know, Allison Steele. Oh, you know of she's there, the Nightbird. Yeah. Oh, I used to listen to yeah. Allison Steele, the Nightbird, you know. Yeah. There are certain, like, Joni Mitchell, Richie Havens songs that always remind me of her. Pete Fornitale was there, Pete too. Pete Fornitale was yeah. there, yeah. Joe Pialczyk, I remember that name. Mm-hmm. But the other thing about that was, like, there's not going to be any openings here. These people are kind of, you know, this is New York, dude. Is that Murray the Cave Station? No. Um, let's see. I want to say, uh, who was the other the big one there? Cousin, Cousin Brucey. Brucey. I actually remember a time in New York when Cousin Bruce was on WABC. Ding! Yeah. Um, and then in the evening, you would hear Bruce Morrow on WORFM. <laughs> WOR was the first to be playing. Like, I was in Greenwich Village when Richie Havens was playing down the street. Mm-hmm. And that's all you knew of Richie Havens. But all of a sudden, Richie Havens is on the radio, man. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. when WOR started in the summer of 67 when I was there. I also, a little sideline. Um, was always broke the whole time I was there, so never had money to go into the clubs or anything. But I, I fervently remember walking down McDougal Street past what has now become kind of a limer, the Cafe Wa, oh, with sure. a question mark. Yes, yes, yes. I remember very well the little stand-up outside, like a little chalkboard, mm-hmm. um, appearing tonight, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. You know, they would have the name of the band that was oh, playing yeah, there yeah, that yeah. night. Never went to see them. Um, but at some point, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames were no longer playing at the Cafe Wa or any other places in town. But a few months after that, a friend came screaming in. I remember it was at the Albert Hotel. I don't know who lived there. I was visiting somebody. Uh, to me, the Albert was famous because the Love and Spoonful rehearsed there. 
oh, before they made it big. You know, yeah, yeah, it's in the village. Um, but I was visiting somebody there, and I remember somebody running in and said, Jesus, have you heard this? Remember the guy that used to play down the street, Jimmy James? Yeah. Well, he went to England, man, and he, he's got his own record out under his real name. It was Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? Oh. So I kicked myself in the ass for, like, why didn't you spend five bucks and go into the Cafe Y and see this guy? You know. Yeah. Never did. So what are you going to do? Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned the Spoonful yeah. in New York. Didn't you yeah. once tell me that you once saw Joe Butler, the drummer of the Spoonful, oh, God, at a yes. bar? Yeah. Yeah. And he ended up kind of owning the Love and Spoonful concept in later years. Oh, and he I, does now, yeah. I was resentful. Um, although I really liked uh, some of the songs he did and, and so forth. I was a fan of the band. I mean, like, next to the Beatles, Love and Spoonful were like the 60s thing well, for they me. Were great. They um, were great. Zelyanovsky, man. That as I said before, I was into folk music. I was part of that. And as part of the folk music scene in the early 60s, the jug bands were part of that. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to the Jim Queskin jug band. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes. And a sidelet musician who played harmonica with them was named John Sebastian. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and Maria and Maldar, Maria Maldar was part of that. Um, yeah. It was a couple, Jeff and Maria Maldar. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff was part of the Queskin jug band. Maria sang. She was never a very good singer, but I just loved her. Mm-hmm. And Midnight Anthony, who could, who could not love that soulful. song? She's very soulful. She's very, very soulful. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could find videos of her on YouTube. She, yeah, she's yeah. she's still performing. She's she's great. Um, oh, hell, what uh, the the young girl from the Cowsills is still performing. Susan Cowsills. Susan yes, Cowsills, that's wonderful. That's right. That's right. Well, and I think Sebastian. <clears throat> My friend Eddie co-wrote a song after I was in the Army with two other people that ended up on the big Cowsills album. Oh. Two years later, when I went back to New York, he was still getting royalty checks. I was so jealous. How about that? Um, wow. It wasn't a hit, but it was on the same album yeah. as their big hit, The Rain, The Park, and Other Things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he got paid every time they sold the album. Well, and John yeah. Cowsill, you know, is the drummer for, is it Brian Wilson now, I think? Wow. I think he plays drums for Brian yeah. Wilson's band. What a nice history they have together. Yeah, huh? yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Cowsills had uh, quite a, you know, a soap opera history of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a documentary on them with the parents, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I was in New York uh, being turned down very nicely by Scott Muni. I also went to a station that had just come on called Q4, WQIV. Mm -hmm. It had been a classical radio station that had switched to album rock to compete with WNEW. And I remember, I think it was Tom O'Hare was the program director. Why that sticks, I don't know. But I went to see him on the same little trip to New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess probably something similar, not as memorable, but it was like, you know, this is New York. Even though we're a new station, we're staffed. You know, nothing's going to happen here. Well, here's my tape, you know. Mm -hmm. And nothing ever happened with that. But that was the one that, um, uh, who was the conservative commentator that spoke like that? Um, it used to be on, on, uh, on PBS. He was the conservative. Uh, oh, um, you know what I'm talking about William F. Buckley Jr. Buckley, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Um, and Buckley, uh, the whole family. I, I think I think a brother and some others. They were very influential. They actually started a movement that uh, I think forced that station back to classical. Did they so really? It wasn't an album rock wow. station very long. I don't know how they pulled that off. I don't know. You know somebody knew somebody at the FCC or you know, <clears throat> yeah. like that. A little, a little bit of uh, green changed hands. Well, yeah, you know the same same kind of influences that we don't know about. The, yeah. You know, same kind of thing where you know, Dan Rather and a producer dug up the truth on George W. Bush <laughs> and promptly got fired. Yeah. You know? um, 
that it was still the truth. Um, anyway, that's that's beside the point. So uh, my trip to New York didn't work out very well, and my wife and I just decided at some point if we were going to make a change and upgrade or whatever, then we probably should just up and leave Willamette, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So we decided to just both quit our jobs at some point and move back to Pittsburgh and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And it went long enough that I was back here living in Point Breeze, I remember. I remember smelling the cookies from the NBC Bakery, which is now Bakery Square. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, waiting for the bus in the morning. You could smell the, the – I think they made graham crackers or arrowroots maybe. Uh, I, remember could smell that, them bacon. I remember yeah. that smell because I used to work yeah. in the East and mm. several years ago, not – yeah. Well, not in recent years, but several years ago, and you'd come out at yeah. the end of the day, and you could yeah. smell it in the air. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's been so nice to see that because that was empty for a long period of time. Yeah, you know, just yeah. abandoned, and it's really nice to go there now and say, "Wow, Google's in here." You know, it's it's really cool, and they built all these great um, uh, apartment buildings nearby. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where all the millennial techies that come in from yeah. outside. You know, I think I had relatives who yeah. worked at the Nabisco plant at the bakery also. Yeah, well, it was a big employer. Yeah, sure, at the time. Yeah. Anyway, living out there, and uh, it went long enough me trying to find another job that uh, I thought, oh, this was a big mistake. Should have stayed in Connecticut. We're going to go. I was actually able to draw unemployment from Connecticut, even Mm -hmm. though I left voluntarily. Their rules were different. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a story there, too, that will come up once I get to DVE. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At some point, I guess I had either made an appointment or popped by there or whatever, and Jimmy Roach was not officially program director because that was against the union rules for him to be in a management position and be on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was like program coordinator or something, you know, just change in terminology. And the Ted Rossetti that I mentioned was actually the management guy who signed off on mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And I had left the tape with Jimmy. Um, and I guess they were looking for somebody part-time at some point. And just when I was dejected thinking, uh-oh, um, I'm not going to find something else here. This was a mistake. I should have stayed in Connecticut. I got a call from Ted Rossetti. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you come down and see us? We need somebody to work part-time. Um, so I worked. I actually worked, uh, went and saw Jimmy because he was actually handling things and, uh, you know, got oriented how they did things and here's the studio and, you know, um, after a while it's like, you know, um, <laughs> Where's the bathroom? Is <laughs> <You know>, <laughs> all you needed to know, especially uh, when uh, when it became what was called superstars. When Lee Abrams was consulting all these album rock stations, you could actually go from uh, one city to another city, and if it was a, an Abrams station, that's all you needed to know. I used to say that. So all you need to know is like, where's the bathroom? <laughs> <You know? laughs> all right, everything else I know. You know the playlist, the whole deal, because um, it was kind of franchising. Um, but that was the early days of it. We still hand wrote. The music, we had three-by-five cards. You had to pick from categories. And we did have a list that showed the categories of music. You know, you play a C1. After that, you're supposed to play an A, you know. Um, Of course, we all cheated. We took the songs we liked, you know, and put them in the front of the cards. Yeah. (laughs) You're supposed to play the next one. It's like, nah, I don't want to play that, you know. (laughs) And then I think once or twice an hour, we got to choose something of our own. So you'd play one of your weird things that you were into, you know. Um but it's amazing looking back on those days. Um, well, I'll finish the story first. And they hired me to go part time, and then within a few weeks went on strike. Oh. <laughs> now I was new, so I was not in the union. I did mm. not have to go on strike. I could have worked. They didn't ask me to, and I didn't ask to. 
because I thought if I want to stay here and I would love to work at WDVE, it's my dream. You know, this is great. I'm going to actually get a job here, even if it's part time. I don't care. This is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I was thrilled. So my thought was, you know, you better just like stay out of this. And when the strike is settled, you'll go back in and fine. If you, if you go work now, you're going to be a scab. And when they settle the strike, you're out of here. The mm-hmm. union will not want you, you know. Um, and the reason I mentioned unemployment earlier is that I was living in Point Breeze, and I would actually go to East Liberty. But back then, you, you didn't do it on telephone. You had to go to the unemployment office. Mm-hmm. And they would ask you, did you work this week? No. <laughs> <laughs> Were you offered work this week? No. And they would sign, and I was getting my unemployment. I would leave there, get on a bus, go downtown, walk the picket line, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was great because I met – I was just thinking about it for some reason the other day. Um, I had nice conversations there with Bob Wilson, who was that voice the on voice. KQV. yes. What a marvelous man. I mean, some exchanges just went back back and forth on Facebook last week. His daughter contributed there. I said, well, I, I only spent that time with him out on the sidewalk, but – you know, he was a, an incredible guy with a and great people, story. He was actually a man who, when he was a boy, ran away and joined the circus. Did he really? I mean, how many times do you hear that story and nobody <laughs> ever does it? He did. You know? Well, you know, and, you know, people in Pittsburgh will know Bob Wilson from yeah. Channel 53 voiceovers because yeah. he was the one that would always say, oh. tonight on the Benny Hill Show yeah. and, and stuff well, like that. Well, for a while, he did everything. Yeah. And I did not know this, and I think Jeff Rotman um, posted this, that he was program director of of the early days at WDVE. I think I did see that. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, apparently he wasn't on the air because I don't remember him being on the air in those days. I remember some of those early people. Right. Um, whose names I can't recall. But um, um, anyway. Um, yeah, but out on the picket line, um, we got a lot of support because it w- uh, the history of it was that ABC, um, you know, Rolled over to 13Q and stopped music on KQV, turned it to all news. But they also were going to sell the stations. They sold the stations to Taft Broadcasting, which is the same family as William Howard Taft, mm-hmm. president, and the Taft-Hartley Act, which is not very union-friendly. I didn't realize uh, that Taft was part yeah. of the president. So family. apparently the idea was uh, Taft Taft's, uh, you know, mindset was, we'll buy these stations from ABC. Mm-hmm. It's Pittsburgh, and it's a very strong union contract. When that contract is up, we ain't doing that crap anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, the feeling went around in the broadcast community that, like, Taft is trying to break the union at KQV and oh, DVE. Wow. So we got support from everybody. Um Paul Long. Oh, yeah, yeah, Paul Long. Del Taylor. Del Taylor, yes. I had conversations with all these people on the street. Um just, it, you know, and these were people I knew from television, so I was like, God, I'm out here shooting the crap with these guys. This is great, you know. <laughs> was Bob Dickey so, at KQV at the time? Bob Dickey was, was management, yeah, yeah. both stations, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, you know, again, we got a lot of support. Um, uh, a lot of c- companies pulled their advertising from both stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one who didn't was, I, I don't want to mention a name because I can't remember what it was, one of the electronics appliance dealers. Oh, sure. You know, there was a Wander Sales. There was I, I, it may not have been them, but one of them yeah. was still advertising. They had several locations, and I know several of our people put flyers together saying these people are supporting a radio station mm-hmm. that has its employees out on strike. Blah blah blah. So of course, um, 
you go out and pick it and hand those flyers out, people who are Teamsters or United Steelworkers or whatever, mm-hmm. back in the strong union days, they would turn around and walk away. I'm buying anything from these people. Right. And uh, that had a big influence as well. And so did, to speak of the Teamsters, the UPS drivers were Teamsters. The stations were in the Chamber of Commerce building downtown. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories that went around after this thing was settled was like, you know, one of the things that helped get this settled was the Chamber of Commerce called Taft and said, well, you settle this thing. UPS won't cross the picket line. We can't even get toilet paper delivered. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And again, I was drawing unemployment and walking walking the picket line with these people. It was just great, you know. Um, So after it was settled, and it was great because – they played, I think the last thing that was played, I think it was Marcy, because the strike was scheduled mm-hmm. to begin during her shift. So they walked out of the building with her playing Bob Dylan's song, We Ain't Gonna Work on Maggie's Farm No More. Oh, <laughs> how appropriate. And then I don't remember what song, uh, you know, this went on for about a month. Um, but I know Jimmy Roach was the first one back on the air, as I recall. And he just opened the mic and said, now, before I was rudely interrupted... And just continued. Oh. And that's very Jimmy Rhodes. Yes, you yes, know, that's yes. Just, you know, foreplay for tonight. Uh, you know. um, always a hero. Always loved the guy. Still do. Yeah. Um, and dry sense of yeah. humor. Yeah. So um, my story is that it wasn't too long after that that Herb Crow left and went to the old WPEZ, which became 3WS. Mm-hmm. Um, and that created a full-time opening. So, boom, I got full-time overnight. Oh, that's um, great. When, and and Herb, my I first, didn't know Herb was there. Yeah. I did not know Herb, no, Herb was, was at DBE before 3WS yeah. and PEZ. That's where I met Herb. Yeah. Um, and my first night at DVE, I was nervous. I'd been oriented, you know, how to work the studio and where everything is and all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's going to be your first night on the air officially. It's like, okay, at midnight, I'm on here and it's all mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you get a little nervous. It's like, hope I got this all down, you know. <clears throat> um, so I come in all nervous and... The, the atmosphere was kind of different because it was Steve Hansen's last night before oh. he was leaving to go to San Francisco. That's part of what created the shakeup, I think, was yes. Steve leaving, but Herb had left uh, mm-hmm. also around the same time. Um, so here I am. I'm hired full-time all night. I'm ready to go on the air for the first time. Mm-hmm. At midnight, Steve is there with some fan who brought him champagne. and you know. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I remember that because the champagne was spilled on the control board. Yeah. And as it turned to sticky sugar a few hours later, <laughs> I was on the air by myself oh, no. and had to call the engineer who I didn't know because I just started. It's like, uh, my controls don't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I learned that uh, they were they were copper coils inside of plastic, so you could mm-hmm. actually take those out with two screws, put them in a dishwasher, and they were fine. Oh, yeah. So, well, no, did those overnight And they had shifts, spares, so there was no... Um, did those overnight shifts feel like they're going on forever when you're working that many hours in a row? Well, what seemed to go on forever was that we got into a thing of playing two albums in their entirety mm-hmm. every night at midnight. Yeah. So I would come on and say hello, and then I was gone for two hours pretty much. <laughs> uh, you know. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, and I would get bored because I'd put on an album. It's like, okay, I'm good for the whole side here. Mm-hmm. Um and snack machines were two stories up, so you'd go out and get on the elevator and go up to the snack machine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one night I was playing a new album by a, a band that had been established, but they became bigger later. Um, and I let, you know, I, th- I think I put on side two, because this is the last song on it, mm-hmm. called The Last Resort. Um, I'd gone up to the snack machines and fooled around or whatever, and I came back, and it was, 
She came from Providence, one in Rhode Island, one in Rhode Island. And I had no idea how long it had gone on um, because I'd been out of the studio. Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. There are tons of horror stories like that in the business, you know. (laughs) Larry King has one where when he was young, he was at a music station and had like a little chippy girlfriend Mm -hmm. not far away. So he would like go visit her and they'd have the radio on. And I don't know what he was playing, tapes or something. Uh, but something happened where he like he's in bed with this girl, blocks oh. away. <laughs> and something happened. He's supposed to be in the studio. Yeah, he's, he's got a great story there. Yeah. Hello, Miami. <clears throat> yeah. Anyhow. Did you have a lot of... Yeah, it was of, great. Uh, you know, one thing I remember about the radio days, and especially when we were at 3WS and uh, some of our colleagues, there were a lot of people that would call in on the phones who were just regular Oh, callers. God, yes. I'll yeah. bet you had a lot of regular callers. I had something that were rather strange, too. Everybody has yeah. them. Uh, one that sticks in my mind is the guy that used to call. It sounded very normal and nice, but like, could I come to the studio sometime and tickle your feet? No. Oh, yeah. Really? Um, oh. And it, several times he, he did that. You know, I would say, uh, no, that's not something that I would, you know. I'm not supposed to have visitors anyway, but that's not something oh. I'd be. Well, would you send me one of your socks? <laughs> now, I know, you know, I don't, I, I don't get this. I know there are guys that have foot fetishes yeah. about women's feet, which are generally a lot yeah. prettier. Yeah. Um, at least in my mind. <laughs> Apparently, to this guy, my feet would have been fine for him, but no, that's, I did not send him a sock. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that's interesting. And I, I mentioned the uh, nightclub idea. That came from a woman that called regularly mm-hmm. that uh, at least talked like she was in the medical field and knew these doctors that had money they wanted to invest. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, she said, I spoke to them, and they were interested in your idea of putting a nightclub in Station Square, mm-hmm. and they're willing to fund it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we made plans. My friend and I went to visit Nancy Flaherty, and we mm-hmm. looked at the blueprints, and we picked a spot. And, you know, then the next step was to gather at my place in Mount Washington to talk about the money, and nobody showed up. Mm-hmm. And I never heard from her again. So, uh-huh. you know, you have to be careful. You know, when I taught at Columbia College in Chicago, a broadcasting class, mm-hmm. I had, you know, 17, 18-year-old students. And I remember telling I said, you know, for, for women... You kind of already know this. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be told so much. But for you guys, you're going to get calls at a radio station. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're playing like, you know, teenage music, you're going to get calls from young girls who offer you things or whatever. Be very careful. Yeah. yeah. Now, I have to admit that I married one. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it started that way. That was actually a little different. I mean, you know my ex-wife, Diane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually started when I was at the old FM 97 in the disco days, and mm-hmm. I did what was called Studio 97, mm-hmm. um, which was a disco show where I ran sound effects, making it sound like it was live from a nightclub. And the flattering thing is it worked because there were people that actually came by and rang the doorbell in the building. Why did you come into the nightclub? And I thought, uh, you don't know how radio works. Oh, you know what? That's Think a of magic. the old fire sign theater, you know. That's a magic. It's Dan Freeberg. That's yeah. the magic of radio. Yeah. Building a, an ice cream um, sundae on Lake yeah, Erie. Yeah, but I had, <laughs> I had, you know, what carts are, the cartridge tapes. Uh, and you can set them up so they play a continuous loop instead mm-hmm. of stopping. I had <clears throat> several of those, one with like tinkling glasses. I think I made a sound effects package where I had tinkling glasses. I had. Um, Thumping beats like they were in the background, mm-hmm. like you were, and it sounded like you were sitting at a table in a nightclub with all that background. Oh, noise. yeah, um, you know, crowd uh, people mm-hmm. mumbling, etc. 
Um, and anytime I opened the microphone, that was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and it's nice that people actually bought it. But, yeah. Well, you know, uh, in a Diane way- was was divorced. Um, had a had a daughter who would spend alternate weekends with her dad, the usual. And she wrote a letter to the radio station saying, I always listen to Studio 97 because um, when my daughter's away, it's just me at home, and I put on my leotard, mm-hmm. and, and I dance to the music, blah, blah, blah. It was very flattering. It came to the um, uh, day Popovich mm-hmm. was the program director, and Popovich said, here, it's your show. Uh, it's a very nice letter. You might want to answer it. So I did, and I gave her kind of the uh, inside number, not the private line, but there's a, there was a middle one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing overnight. She called one night at like um, 1 or 2 in the morning, and we chatted for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the conversation ended. Well, call me again sometime. Okay. And she was back at like 4.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we chatted some more until I was off the air at 6. And it's like, well, you're up. I'm up. You want to meet for breakfast? Mm-hmm. So that's what started that. And 13 years and four kids later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and yeah. Can, can I just say, I mean, I, remember, I haven't seen Diane in mm. years, but she was always such a nice person. I remember her being very, yeah, very she, nice. Yeah. Um, she's had issues, mm-hmm. as, as I've told you. But, yes. you know, um, there are lots of those about. Yeah, uh, well, <clears throat> when you were at DVE... I'm not 100% wrapped perfectly either, <laughs> you know. Well, when you were at DVE... Um, that you know that at that time and that place, that's Boy, what people that were it. listening to. Yeah. So, well, that, there was uh, you know people don't realize that uh, there wasn't so much diversity then. Right. Um, if you were young, and we aimed at eighteen to thirty-four was our mm-hmm. core audience, um, and it leaned more male because of you know just rock and roll, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, right? You know, especially later on, it became like ACDC and all, um, which is when I thought it dumbed down. When mm-hmm. I, people don't believe me. When I first started at DVE, we actually broke Gino Vanelli. Oh, he was bigger yes, in Pittsburgh yes. than he was anywhere else. He was huge. Mm-hmm. I saw several sold-out shows at Syria Mosque. Um, there was a wonderful show on a very snowy night at the Civic Arena where people didn't show up because the weather was so bad. Mm-hmm. And Gino was thrilled. He came out and said, you know what? Don't sit way back there. Come on up around the stage because there were so few people. That is cool. Relatively, that we all were in like, you know, first six rows or whatever. And Gino did a phenomenal show. Did you? I love that man. We, I mean, he. people don't realize he's had these hits that are like associated with kind of like Carpenter's, you know, clean cut adult radio. But he did like Storm at Sunup and Powerful People and these long well, the early eight, ten stuff minutes. Was like, it was like yeah. Thon rock back then. And his brother was a synthesizer wizard. Yeah. That's what yeah. the shows would be. Gino would come out on stage, you know, looking like the Italian stallion. Yeah. Um, and his brother was there with nine keyboards, you know, yeah. and uh, and the flashing lights and stuff. It was always spectacular. That was ahead of its time. And it all like- those girls who threw panties at him on stage, sorry, girls. He's a fan of boys. Oh, is it? You know, just, I did not yeah, know that. <laughs> I don't mean it as an insult, but it was just always kind of funny that the girls just drooled over Gino and said, yeah, but he don't care, honey. You well, you mentioned, you mentioned the Civic Arena. You, mm. I think, had some really cool adventures emceeing concerts when you were at DVE. Um, I only did – I didn't do a lot because I, I ended up working evenings. Yeah. Uh, oh, one, so you weren't there. One story I tell people is like from the seventh floor of the Chamber of Commerce building, at least at the time, you could not see the Civic Arena, but you could see the sky above it. Oh, yeah. And I remember being on the air when Pink Floyd was there and they opened the roof and I saw the lasers and I was like, shit, I've got to work. 
<laughs> I never saw Pink Floyd. And you um, also you also saw. And I would interview. I remember interviewing um, uh, uh, JY from Styx, who was backstage at the arena before the show. He yeah. called the radio station. We chatted on the air about how great the show was going to be. He hung up, did the show. I'm in the studio, mm-hmm. and then. After you know, you time it so when the concert's over, you play the music of the artist who just performed because people are driving home, they want to hear it again, whatever. That was the idea, anyway. I had to play a bunch of sticks and say how great the show was. I didn't get to go, <laughs> so no, I didn't MC a lot. Um, the one that I did do, I remember, was Burton Cummings and America. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a treat again. I used to be in bands. It was Burton Cummings so, by himself, not with the guest. His, right, that was later okay. on when he yeah. did uh, his rewrite of Born Free. Yes, yes. Stand tall. It's yes, like, that's yes. Born Free. <laughs> he should have been sued. Um, he was actually rather rude to me, so. I wanted um, to ask you about I was that. interrupting. He was trying to pay attention to what was on stage, and yeah. I was trying to ask him questions. So it was really my fault, but he, you know. He could have been nicer. I've heard interviews um, with him where he he does seem yeah. like he can be a little short yeah. sometimes. Well, I know he and Randy, I think Backman is yeah. the proper. Uh, I think he and Randy had a lot of conflicts. Oh, but they then did, yes. Randy became a Mormon and all these other things, so there was other stuff. Yeah. But, man, he was a brilliant guitar player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I still, um, she's come undone. You yep. know that? Yep. That's yep. the kind of thing you hear on WJPA that nobody else will play anymore. Nobody will play. Well, and also, I'll be driving along and go, oh, God, this is brilliant. Was you it know. These Eyes that Randy actually came up with the piano riff for that? Uh, I don't know any story was behind it? that. I, I, I think it was, but, yeah. yeah, you're right, with Undone. But that was I mean, a, that's just... a string of really great songs, yeah. 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 And, of course, yeah. you know, America was the headliner on this show. I didn't get to meet them, yeah. uh, however. Um, but I still love listening to them. It's just lovely stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was my first. Uh, that's, that's the one that sticks in my mind at the Civic Arena. Because um, later on, when I was out of radio doing other things, there were times when I did a job interview where somebody, well, how are you with public speaking? It's like, uh, pretty okay. <laughs> uh, well, what's the largest group you ever spoke to? Uh, 18,000? <laughs> you know? Right. So, but I remember walking out that night uh, with the Burton Cummings in America show. Um, you know, and the routine is you go out and introduce yourself and you say, you know, hey, I'm so-and-so from the radio station. And people go, yeah, they're just pumped up for a show. They don't give a shit right. about you. You know, yeah. they might, but, you know. Um, and I know I made some reference to the contest we used to do called Quickies where there were little snippets of songs you mm-hmm. had to identify. Oh, yeah. Um, so I made some reference to that. But I approached the microphone that night very slowly because I had been in bands. And mm-hmm. I thought... I want to kind of drink this in, see what this would feel like if I had a guitar struck around my neck. Oh, interesting. And yeah. I was walking up to that microphone to perform. I want to know what that would feel like. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I walked up very slowly to that microphone with that image in mind, and I looked around a little bit, and I thought, hell yeah. <laughs> you know, I never got to perform in anything that big, but it would have been cool. Now, you know? from the stage, were the house lights up when you were doing that, or were they down? Could you, could you see think, into the audience No, I think they turned them down for, Did they? Uh, you know, when you walk out okay. and hit you with a spotlight. That's mm-hmm. that's what I recall, anyway. Um, so you're only seeing the but it's also, it's, it's also nice, whether it's sincere or not, to go out and say, Hi, I'm Trevor Lay from WDVE. <sighs> yeah. That's yeah. pretty damn cool. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. That's something you keep. You go, well, they might have just been pumped up for a show or high or whatever. Well, Trevor, you know. back in the day. But that's pretty damn cool to feel. Back yeah. in the day, we didn't have cable TV. Exactly. We only had a handful of radio, mm-hmm. station and, uh, radio stations and only a few that young people were listening to. That's what I was starting so to say before. Were, if you, you weren't into, like, teeny pop 40, yeah. 
and you weren't into dad's music, yeah. you know, Tony Bennett and so forth, which I really am now, but yeah. um, I've expanded. You know, my dad hated the Beach Boys, but he ended up with the Beach Boys in his car. Oh, yeah. Along yeah. with his Glenn Miller. We both had them. Oh, sure. <laughs> so, but this, but this, was your, yeah. this was probably your first taste of celebrity, yeah? When you were at DVE? A, a little bit at um, in Connecticut. Yeah. It wasn't as big. I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, to backtrack to Connecticut, I was there only about three weeks, and I had to do a commercial. And I had to go check. Is this for real? This isn't the real guy, right? Because the commercial was this place called Shabu Inn. Mm-hmm. And it was for an appearance by Muddy Waters. I went, oh, this is Willamette, Connecticut. Muddy Waters, not like the Muddy Waters. And they said, oh, yeah, they're getting all kinds of acts. They're, the guys that own it are blues fans. Yeah. I'm like, no shit, Muddy Waters and Willamette. <laughs> they actually were across the border in another town mm-hmm. jurisdiction but close enough mm-hmm. and that what they would do um it, it was some hippies from two different families one family was in the restaurant business the other in real estate mm-hmm. and they bought this abandoned thread mill right put in three bars and a stage they had some rooms upstairs there's a great story there in that they booked a band from boston and negotiated we'll give you the three rooms we'll give you dinner if you'll play two nights for 400 a night mm-hmm. and they did it was Aerosmith. <laughs> That's the story. Um, Kiss was also booked there at one point. They, they didn't make it. Um, but, yeah, you know, what they would do is book talent that was going to play, like, in New York on one weekend and Boston in the next weekend mm-hmm. and book them for Wednesday and Thursday nights. Yeah, yeah. And there was the university. Also, if it was a big enough draw, people would come up from New Haven because it wasn't that, you know, so mm-hmm. Yale all that. Um, yeah, there were some people. That, Jonathan Edwards was really big there before he had a hit and even after. Bonnie Raitt was always a big draw. Mm-hmm. Um, but they booked some big stuff. I first saw um, who only had, well, they had two albums out. The first one had gotten ignored. The second one was getting attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, That's where yeah. I first saw them. Um, I remember playing um, what's song? a song called Dance With Me. Dance with me, Orleans. Yeah, Orleans. I had no yeah. idea what this band was. I really liked the record, so let's go. Oh, they're at Shabu. I always got in free, you know, because we had a nice relationship. We actually broadcast concerts of theirs. We had a phone line from the club into, you know, um, Orleans with Congressman John Hall, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and anti nukes, John Hall. Yeah, yeah, that's how he got into politics. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I remember walking into Shabu, and it's like, okay, I like that record. Let's see yeah. what else they do. And they were doing Dance With Me when I walked in beautifully, I'll doing bet. it live. Yeah. And then right after they finished, they all swapped instruments and went into something else. I went, God, these guys. Are... And they blew me away. Mm-hmm. And they still do. I go back and listen to Old Orleans, you know. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Edwards and, uh, is one of those guys that several years ago I saw an ad in a magazine, a music magazine, for some CDs that came out called The Vineyard Sound. Mm. The guy who produced them up on Martha's Vineyard Martha's was Vineyard, guy, yeah. Peter, Peter Simon. Uh. I called up to order them because they looked interesting. Peter and I just hit it off on the phone. I didn't oh, nice. realize till much later that Peter was Carly Simon's brother. Ah, get out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that but Jonathan have, yeah, Edwards, um, he's still out there and he's still playing. And uh, he had some music on the uh, on the Vineyard Sound yeah. CDs. And he's very good. He's very yeah. good. He's very uh, you never good. know. I remember uh, when I was in Dallas uh, and I was production director, I had to order tape and supplies mm-hmm. from from a, a company that wholesaled that kind of goods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I... You know, I would call every couple of weeks or so ordering tape and yeah. reels and so forth. Um, and empty reels in boxes, we'd send tapes out. Right. Anyway, I, I had a relationship with a woman who always answered the phone and took mm-hmm. the orders. 
And one time she said, I had such an experience yesterday with a customer who's been regular here for years. I didn't know who he was. She said, I knew him as John something or other. And that's all I knew. And I knew the name of his studio in Oklahoma. I said, oh, okay. She said, and we got into a longer conversation. And he said, well, I used to perform and make records and I produced things. It was Johnny Rivers. But she had no idea. She talked. I've talked to him for years. He never said, you know, you I'm Johnny know. Rivers. You never, you never know. Yeah. Well, and um, he was people. That I've read recently how much influence Johnny Rivers had on things. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Lou Adler, yes. who ended up producing Mamas and Papas, mm -hmm. and, you know, Carol King's uh, Tapestry. You know, I mean, the guy's huge. Well, Johnny Rivers was a record executive too at one point. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Soul City Records. Yes. Uh, if you look at the first Fifth Dimension albums, they're on Soul City. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was a big part of that whole... He was tied in with the Wrecking Crew, yeah. and, you know, he did things before that, too. I can't remember who, but, like, some, some 50s people yeah. that he toured with. And, yeah, he has one hell of a background, and, you know... He's sort of like our mutual buddy, Tom Cossey, who lives in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, used to be the VP of... Um, he was oh, RCA Records had in a New promotion York. at RCA. Sure, built John Denver's I visited career. Him once there. My friend Paul Mawinney, we oh, mentioned yeah. earlier, yeah. who owned Record Rama, uh, going back to the old days of WZUM, mm -hmm. when Kit Barron and people like that were on there. Yep. They would play this record that drove people nuts trying to find it, and they would come into the record shop saying, "I'm looking for this record. I don't know who does it. It says Ground Control to Major Tom." So we're looking through the titles. You know, it used to be books. You could look yeah. up titles. Like, there's no Major Tom. There's no other. What is this? That went on for months. And there was a huge demand for this song. Mm -hmm. And Paul got to Tom Cosby because they knew each other. Yeah. And said, Tom, people are going nuts for this song, this ground control of Major Tom. Mm -hmm. Well, ended up, it was on Mercury Records. I don't know if it had been deleted from the catalog or what, but all of a sudden, David Bowie shows up on RCA Records where yeah. Tom Cossey was. <laughs> so um, I think Paul was given a copy of Gold Record yeah. for uh, Space Oddity. Which oh, is what? admitted to what I what I was into to yeah. other people to like fans you know fans of the radio stations like yeah you're into Led Zeppelin I said yes but you know what I go home and I listen to jazz yeah <laughs> I go home and I listen to uh, you know all the '70s soul stuff yeah I mean I got God I still love that stuff the main ingredient oh, well you know what Trevor let's um let, let's do this again sometime we definitely have to do this again because we just yeah. scratched the surface. Oh. It was great to see Trevor again, and I look forward to presenting more interviews and stories on BirdCast. Um, you can find us online at www.birdcast.com and also on our Facebook page at BirdCast, B-U-R-G-H-C-A-S-T. Until next time, I'm John Fries. Thanks for listening.